Now for our second message brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, God Save the King or the King Save Us. Good afternoon. Let me apologize in advance for my very sinusy voice. I've been battling a cold this week. And, um, you know, the, the, as the title there says, I, I did think about maybe God Save King George, but that might not go down very well. <laughs> so I think this is a better title. You know, at this time of the year, I'm actually, um, believe it or not, I'm quite conflicted. Um, you know, fortunately, it doesn't break out into outright hostilities within myself, but it's a strange time of the year for me because um, I love my country, both of them. And, you know, that you can see that's a, a conflict, right? And many people can say that, of course, but only people from England, and Mark will attest to this, can understand it in quite the same way because, of course, with the 4th of July, it's very much a memorial of one people becoming two nations and uh, dividing asunder. You know, I do love my country. Uh, I love the land that bore me. I love the United Kingdom. I love its history. In me and my DNA is quite literally a DNA for every part of the island. I have Irish in me. I have Scottish in me. I have English in me. And as I just learned just recently, as their DNA database keeps getting better and better from Ancestry.com, I have Welsh in me also. Because I was, a long time I was confused. I love Wales. Always have. But I'm not from there? Well, it turns out I am. I am absolutely 100% what you could call a Briton. I'm from every part of the island. And you know, that's a good name for me, otherwise you can just call me a mutt, right? Because I'm just, I'm a mixture, I'm not, pure nothing. So I am a jumbled mess, but I am a Briton. And then interestingly enough, I, I, I actually have a little Viking DNA in there, which you know, might explain the beard, which used to be redder than it is now. And there's a little bit of Normandy, France, but we keep that quiet. We don't, don't want to talk about that. But I love the country of my birth. And I love this country also. I'm a citizen of this republic. I love this vast land. I love its people. I love its constitution and the high and noble principles that are, are in it and upon which it was founded. I love all the good things that my two countries have done in the world. And I'm not ignorant of the mistakes that we have made in the world. Of course we have but we have done good in the world. I love that we have defended freedom and liberty together. I love that we have slowly, and perhaps at times too slowly, advanced civil liberties and civil rights. But as I said, I am conflicted on the 4th of July because it is a reminder to me that the Declaration of Independence brought to an end any possibility of reconciliation between Parliament and the Crown and the 13 original colonies. The 4th of July is a day that marked another bloody civil war between brothers. 
And like most wars, it was a war that didn't need to happen. It was a war that shouldn't have happened. It was, as I've heard others explain, it was a monumental failure in foreign policy and in governance. It was a war that didn't need to happen. And yet, without this separation, the ideals of the Declaration and then the Bill of Rights later may not have developed at all, which is really interesting to think about. The 4th of July, 1776, rebooted a process that had stalled out, a process that had started in England, in Runnymede, at the signing of the Magna Carta. And the, it rebooted that process and then advanced it far beyond any of the English visionaries saw. But who knows? Had the War of Independence not taken place? Maybe had the philosophies and the ideas of, of England and the, the 13 colonies been allowed to flourish and become in English law, who knows where we would have been as a combined power in World War I, World War II, Maybe those wars never would have happened before, or happened at all. What might have been without that separation. But nonetheless, we know that it did happen. And for over seven years, brothers fought one another, until in 1781, the British forces surrendered to the American and French forces at Yorktown. And the Civil War formally ended. The War of Independence formally ended in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. And yet, and this is really very interesting and very unique in the history of the world, and yet in spite of that conflict, and in spite of another conflict, the War of 1812, these two countries have been the most ardent allies of one another for the longest time. And it's amazing that it has happened, given the start that my two countries had. They have stood side by side for global peace, for civil rights, with, I think, our greatest achievement still being, in my opinion, World War II and the defeat of the Axis powers and the liberation of the world from the grip of the, the Japanese power and the, the Nazi power. In fact, while my family and I were, you know, we were just recently back home in England a few weeks ago, we had the pleasure of being on the southern coast of England for the D-Day celebrations. 75 years this year uh, was the, the D-Day landings. And of course, D-Day, June 6, 1944, was the day when the Allied forces of the British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, and United States mounted the biggest naval invasion in all of human history. Credible event on its own. Landing hundreds of thousands of troops on the Normandy coast in France. And then in less than a year from that date, the German forces were completely destroyed. The Nazi power over Europe was defeated and we had the end of the war in Europe. And you know, it's interesting. It all happened just as Winston Churchill said it would. 
I don't know if you remember that or if you're a history buff like me, so I apologize if this is too much history for you. But Winston Churchill prophesied five years before when Britain stood completely alone against the Nazi war machine. He said that Britain would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, stepped forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And that is what happened. It absolutely happened on June 6th, 1944. So it was a real treat to kind of be down there, especially, as I say, for a history buff. To be down there on the South English coast for that anniversary date. And we decided, rather than going to Portsmouth, because for some reason the president kept following us around the country. We decided to go to Portsmouth. He had to go to Portsmouth. And we, went to, we wanted to go to London, and yeah, he went to London too. And so instead of going to Portsmouth, you know, the queen was there, and the president was there, and the prime minister was there, and all kinds of European leaders were there. And interestingly enough, Angela Merkel was there celebrating the, the, the defeat of her own country, but anyway. So we decided let's do that a different day, and we went to Dover instead. And I don't know if you know a lot about Dover, but you've probably heard of the White Cliffs of Dover, right? And the bluebirds flying over the White Cliffs of Dover. Well, that day was a beautiful day, and we got a real treat to go into Dover Castle. <coughs> now, this castle site is very, very old. Uh, the use of the site for defensive purposes dates back to Roman time. And the Romans first built a fort at the, at the top of the hill overlooking what is, is now Dover, the city itself. They first built that in 800 BC. So, pretty old. 2,800 years ago. But the main part of the castle that is there today was started by William the Conqueror. And of course, uh, if you know your history, in 1066, this little upstart from, from northern France came and invaded England and established the Norman rule in, in England. Of course, that's the last time that England was ever invaded. The castle then has been manned by British forces for almost a thousand years. And the reason why is just 18 nautical miles off that point is France. And we could see it standing on the castle walls looking out across the English Channel. We could see France. And no, reason, no, you know, no wonder we're going to build a fort right here. right? Because we, not only is France there, but behind France is all of Europe. And we could get invaded at any time. And so, of course, they built that castle. And as I say, it was continually used all the way up through World War II. And you can just think about it. 75 years ago, I was thinking about that, standing on top of the castle, looking at France. 75 years ago from that day, all of the German war machine was sitting right there, just 18 miles off the coast. Of course, by that time, Britain's defenses had been shored up. The Royal Air Force was dominating the skies, and the, the bombing raids 
by the Allies had started to diminish Germany's power. But five years before that, after Dunkirk, there was none of that protection. And the miracle inside of all of that is that England was not invaded that entire time. And so, it just made me think about the history of the place and the importance of the place. And we, we got a special treat as well because after we went back down into town, we could hear this noise. And it was the noise of an aircraft and we looked down the coast and here comes a Spitfire flying over our heads and then peeling off to France. And you can just imagine yourself 75 years ago to that day, seeing all of that activity. Of course, this war, just like the Revolutionary War, was a war that didn't need to happen. Had the French or the British gone into Germany in 1936, 37, could have easily deposed Hitler and stopped all that he did. Could have just stopped it. Nonetheless, what Churchill called the most preventable war in history did come. And my two countries, shoulder to shoulder, defeated Germany and Japan in the largest conflict ever seen in human history. So I love my country, both of them. But I am not proud of what my two countries have become. We were once a moral people. We once upheld the principles of the Bible, God's law, right and wrong. We knew what was good and what was bad. And now, we don't even care to know the difference. Sexual perversions that were once wrong, well now they are alternate lifestyles. The lives of the unborn, once cherished, are medical waste, aren't they? Truth in our educational systems have been exchanged for lies, falsehood, deception. You know, when I was a boy in school, we had assembly, and it seems to me that we had it at least three times a week. It was like church, and I've talked about this before. We had prayer, and we had a devotional message, and we sung hymns. In fact, the song that we sing sometimes, How Great Thou Art, I learned that in school. I can remember learning that in school. That doesn't happen today, does it? And society was so bad because people learned about God in school back then, wasn't it? I mean, it was awful, right? No, it was not. It was much better, right, than the society that we have now. We were a Christian nation and proud of it. In times of natural crisis, we prayed. In times of national celebration, we prayed. The churches, I remember as a boy, were a great deal fuller than they are now. Now in the UK, I heard recently that one survey claimed that less than 10% of the population identify as practicing Christians in the traditional sense. And over 50% of the population have no religious faith at all. So I ask you a question. Do you think our educational system is working? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. We have taught against the Bible and against the biblical worldview for decades. 
And we are now seeing a deliberate outcome of that educational system. The percentages of Christian faith in the United States, they're better. But they are declining also. They're better than the, the UK, but we shouldn't be under any illusion, should we? You know, I think there was an old phrase that when the UK sneezes, America catches a cold, and vice versa. You know, we're so intertwined in our cultural heritage and in our worldview that things that happen there happen here and vice versa. And even still, here, I, I think I heard this the other day, I forget who said it to me, but what does it matter if somebody claims to be Christian? when they accept lifestyles, deliberate lifestyles, that are completely incompatible with the biblical worldview. I love my two countries, but I am saddened by what they have become. Well, why do I bring all of this up? Well, as we know, there was a people just like us. A nation who claimed to follow the God of the Bible, who were given his law, who heard his voice, who grew powerful and rich. And yet, they, like us, failed to follow what God had given them in his abundant grace. And through their example, we can see what our end might be. What our end might be if we do not repent and turn ourselves around as a people. Now, before we delve into scripture, I just want to say, Reg and I did not talk about our messages at all. There was no communication. And neither did I tell Sean about what my message was about. There was no communication. And yet what we're going to go into just marries perfectly with what I think Reg brought out earlier. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, it says... The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox, it knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they've forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they've turned away backward. You know, in, it says on our money, doesn't it, in God we trust, right? And in our politicians, at the end of nearly every speech, I always hear, and may God bless America, right? It's just a, how you end a political speech. It's like saying amen at the end of a prayer. It's what they do. And they say this right after they've just told us a pack of lies, don't they? Like what Reg was talking about. The president takes an oath, oath of office on the Bible. When was the last time any one of them read it? I think if they had read it, they would rend their clothes like they did when they found the Bible, when they found the Torah, when Josiah said, it says what? 
They would rend their clothes. Because in there are curses. And we don't like to think about it because we like to think about the Bible being positive and, and good for us. And it is, of course, good for us. But there is curses in there. There is curses in there for disobedience, as Israel knows, and as we should take notice. There's curses reserved for those that have invoked the blessings of Almighty God and then did not live by His words. And we can take, we can take this personally, and we can take this as a nation. They claimed God's protection without following any of his commandments. Judah claimed that. Israel claimed that. Oh yeah, we're God's people. Now we're going to live the way we want and practice the way we want. And so God allowed their enemies to come in on them, to punish them, to correct them, to get their attention. How would he get our attention? Events like 9-11, perhaps? Other events? I'm not a prophet. But I can read the prophets, as somebody once said. And we can see what will happen to us if we fail to repent. So God was trying to get their attention. So they could repent, receive God's blessings. And did they? They did not. In 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 9, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's almost a byline. Oh yeah. And uh, the nation of Israel was destroyed. And so on. It was, it's a byline. It's, it's this very briefly mentioned thing. And of course there are other scriptures that go into it in more detail. But it's shocking. It says in verse 9. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah. Which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. So Hezekiah is king of Judah, and Hosea is the king of Israel. The Chalamansar, the, uh, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Samaria being, of course, the capital um, of the northern tribes of Israel. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah and, on the, and by the harbor, the river Gozan and the, city, uh, the cities of the Mede. And why did he do that? Why did he want to do all of those things? Why did he come against Israel in the first place? Well, I'm sure he thought he had, you know, conquering ideas and expand his territory and and so on and so forth. But the real reason why he did that was because God brought it to happen. God allowed it. And the reason for that is in verse 12. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. What do you think that they didn't do? I mean, they didn't listen to the law of God. They didn't want to hear it. So what did they do instead? Well, the opposite to the law, isn't it? Well, what would that be? 
some corruption, like Raj was talking about. Put some cronies in place that had no business being priests, no business running the country, no business administering the so-called law of God to the people. They lied. They stole. They committed murder, probably to cover up their lying and their stealing. The people, they committed adultery. They coveted. They did not honor their father and mother. They engaged in idolatry. Take your pick. But first and foremost, above everything else, they did not put God first. They did not put him first in their life. A lesson for us personally and as a nation. Imagine this, that there's a a team of executives in a boardroom making decisions about how to run their company. And they said, you know, I think we need to evaluate this business decision on the law of God. Is this a right thing for us to do? And you kind of want to laugh at me, don't you, for bringing that idea up. That's just silly. That's business. Don't bring religion into business. Imagine if every political speech was governed by the single law that said, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. I'm thinking in my head there would be no political speeches. Right? I mean, we're that so used to that. We are so embedded in that that how do you know when a politician's lying, right? Because he's moving his mouth. But wouldn't it be incredible if they were all honest? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Vote for me because I want the job. <laughs> be honest. It seems ridiculous. What if for all major decisions as a nation were evaluated not just on the Constitution, but on the law of God? Was this a good thing to do? Is this a moral thing to do? Should we do this in the light of God's law? How different would our society be? Israel had that opportunity. They could have made those decisions. Their constitution was the law of God. Their bill of rights was the covenant that God gave them. And in it was a guarantee of good crops, of healthy children, of being free from oppression, never needing to ever go to war. And they rejected it. They just discarded it didn't follow the covenant that God had given them. The covenant of God that Israel and Judah agreed to had all of those blessings. And it had curses. It did. This was the agreement. This is the benefits and here's the punishment for breaking the agreement. It's curses for disobedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, God summarizes all the detail of this covenant. He just basically says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. Blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods, 
which you have not known. Pretty simple agreement in the end. Obey God's law, which also included the entire process of redemption. His law included a way in which you could get forgiveness when you broke it. They had a way to get back when they broke it. What an amazing law that was. Just obey this law and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Well, as we know from history, Judah went the exact same way as Israel, didn't they? They didn't learn a thing. They just did not learn a thing from Israel. Except, I think they learned how to do it worse. They took it to a whole new level, as Reg talked about earlier. They didn't just reject God's law. They didn't just not want to hear his commandments anymore. They added to this process and brought things into the practice of God, brought things into the house of God that were absolute offense to him. And thought that it's fine. It's okay. We're just, you know, expressing ourselves. We're just changing with the times. In Second Kings chapter 21, verse 11, God speaks to his prophets and says, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has made... Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such a calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. You know, I bet you, sitting in, London or even in the United States and getting the news reports in 1938 and 1939 of the absolute total blitzkrieg of the German forces across Europe. I'm sure it made ears tingle to hear of that. This was one of those things. And it's interesting, he says, and I will stretch over Jerusalem a measuring line of Samaria He's going to measure Jerusalem and Judah by the same standards that he measured Israel and Samaria. It's the same law. It's the same covenant. It's the same agreement that he made. You know, I don't know why we're surprised at that. He doesn't change. God does not change. We are the ones who change. We think right and wrong are malleable. You know, we're, we're modernizing our society. You know, things can change, and, and we, can, we know how to do that. That's not what God says. He says, I change not. And even all the way into, into Christianity, in Hebrews 13, in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. His law does not change. What is good is good, and what is not good is always not good. 
He continues in 2 Kings 21, verse 14. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Think of that imagery. Wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even unto this day. They never did it right. I mean, what a condemnation. From the day that they came out of Egypt to this day, they never really did it right. They never really followed his law. He said, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Just awful imagery. Filling the city with blood. And then the imagery of God scooping up Jerusalem. I mean, it's either, I mean, he's just scooping it up and he's just emptying it out in the trash. Right? What do you do after you've had a meal and you haven't quite finished it, you're full? You scoop it up, right? You don't even take a second thought. You dump it in the trash, plunge it in the, in the sink, you wipe it with the dishcloth, and you put it away. Wiped off the face of the map. That's what he's going to do. That's what he did. And that's what he's going to do again. Why did he do this? What was their crime? Reg alluded to many of those things. If you would turn back to 2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Something unfair about that, isn't there? Josiah, just 18 or so years, and <laughs> this guy, 55. 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. There have been many evil kings in Jerusalem, many corrupt kings, but he was the worst. It says that he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. So this isn't, you know, just a guy who maybe a hundred or so years after a king had restored you know, true worship and knock down pagan altars. No. His father had knocked those down. His father had tried to restore the worship to Israel. And Manasseh just, eh, I'm going to undo all of that. I'm going to destroy all of that. He raised up altars for Baal, made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son, his own son, pass through the fire to Moloch, which as Reg was talking about. It was a practice of offering a child alive in a burning fire of coals to this sickening, corrupt God. 
He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted spiritualists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of an Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel to wander any more from the land which I gave my fathers only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly wicked. And going beyond that of what Israel did and in just incorporating and putting into the holiest place absolute corruption an offense to God. The scripture talks about children being a blessing of the Lord, right? No, we're going to burn them up. They engaged in that evil, evil practice. And they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. I don't know if you remember, but a long time before this, when God was promising Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the land, he had to put them on hold for a little bit. He had to put them on hold because the corruption and the wickedness of the people currently living in that land was not fulfilled. God is merciful and gracious, and he was patient, giving people an opportunity to repent, to stop. Israel went beyond what these guys did. Judah went beyond them. Manasseh rejected God's law. He not only disobeyed the commandments, but as I said, he brought into the holiest place of God the worship of images of other gods. And he tried to merge those evil practices with the six twisted religions into the temple of God. His wickedness and the wickedness of the people is beyond anything that has been done before up until that time. And even, as Reg pointed out, good King Josiah, I think he was the great-grandson of Manasseh. Even Josiah's reformation, as amazing as it was, was not enough. At the end of Manasseh's reign, God decided, I'm done with these people. I'm done with it. His patience was gone. In fact, as Reg was talking, you know, I'm often, for many years now, I think about, if we can just have a Josiah stand up in a presidential election. Right? If we could just get that Josiah. But, you know, the more you think about it, the less likely that is to happen. One, it's not a monarchy, is it? So the president can't dictate what everybody does. But even if we did have a Josiah come and somehow restore the old ways, restore our belief in God, maybe we should rethink that strategy. Because in the end, Josiah was just a postponement of the inevitable. 
aren't we just ready to be done? Aren't we just like God ready for something different, for a better world than what we have today? So first Israel, then Judah fell, and they did it. They did so because they made a deal with God and didn't keep up their part of the bargain. He saved them. He took them out of Egypt. He set them in their own land. He provided for them. And the people accepted this arrangement. They accepted it. They could have said, never mind, we'll make our way across the wilderness and we'll go our own way. But he gave them an offer. An offer they could have refused. They accepted the clauses. And they accepted the clauses that would bring about punishment if they did not obey. They took God's name upon themselves and called on his protection and then rejected his goodness and rejected his law of grace. What could God do? You know, somebody might say, well, you know, he was just a vindictive God. Okay, they, they made a mistake and they didn't follow his law. He could have just left them alone. He could have just walked away. He could have just let them be. No, he could not. Because he is good. And he cannot allow evil to be done in his name. He will not allow that to happen. Just as he cannot allow us to say, God bless America, and then live contrary to his word. How could he tolerate that? Turning back to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Having all that context of what Israel got up to. We can, we can read this and understand what he was telling them. What he was crying out to them to, to pay attention. And save themselves by re- returning back to him. He said in verse 5. Why would you be stricken again? You revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your, children, your, your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. You know, and I'm still wondering, is this part of our immigration trouble? You know, that the, the onslaught of, of immigrants not just in the United States, but in Europe also. Changing the nature and the culture and making it not like the place you grew up. A case in point, we stayed in a part of London that's a very old part of of London. It's close to Canary Wharf and uh, there's a kind of an island there called the Isle of Dogs. Very historical place, historical docks there. And it used to be, uh, as our cabbie told us, uh, a working class neighborhood of good folks, but always been working class. Now, well, one morning I looked out of the kitchen window into the street, and I really thought I, I may have been transported to Tehran because there was women there wearing the complete burkas, completely covered, face covered, literally walking however many paces it is behind their husbands. And I was like, what? Now, they're free to observe, and I'm not saying that we should somehow 
take them out of their faith or, or be in any way but respectful and, and generous and Christian-like to those, those folks. But that's not the country that I grew up in. It's a very different culture. And of course, it's kind of, you know, it's made more obvious when you've been away from a place and then you go back. How has it changed here? And we haven't noticed. Is that part of this, this prophecy that strangers devour your land in your presence and it's desolate as overthrown by strangers? So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, a besieged city. The Im- imagery is a little strange to us, but it, it speaks of just being encircled around, besieged. And we wonder, what happened? How did this happen to us? As the strangers flooded the land. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. (laughs) It's kind of appropriate, isn't it, that those cities are cited because of the judgment that God brought upon those cities. They should have been made like Sodom and made like Gomorrah. But his grace was there. Hear the word of the Lord, he says, you rulers of Sodom. That's what he calls them. Give ear to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. No, your hands are full of blood. You know, that's kind of a strange thing when you think about it. Why are their hands full of blood? Why are their hands full of blood? They're trying to follow all these, you know, these rituals, right? They're trying to get redemption. Are they not? New moons and sacrifices and blood of bulls. I mean, it sounds very similar to what you read in Leviticus, does it not? Except we know that they were trampling his courts at different times than what they were supposed to be. They weren't going on the Day of Atonement or on Passover or trumpets. They were going whenever Ashereth said to go. Right? They were sacrificing to those things and those idols that they had placed in the temple. They were not doing this to God. He's like, who told you to come here at this time? I didn't tell you this. That's why their hands were covered in blood. They didn't get redemption. They got condemnation. They did it in front of him. In his house. (laughs) Bet you they were shocked when they all got carried away. They had no idea. If Israel and Judah called upon God's name, but lived contrary to his word, 
then what makes us think that we can do the same and not receive the same judgment? He just told us he will not hear, he will not see, he will not come to us even though we try to come to him because our corrupt and misguided practices that are against the law that he gave us. He says, you want to hear from me? You want my help? Then wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Get all of that stuff out of the temple. Get it out of the temple. Get it out of our lives. Out of this temple. Out of the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. Get it out. Wash ourselves as we know with the blood of the Lamb. He says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like, uh, red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see any of that happening for our country? Do you see any of that happening? What would it look like if our country returned to the old way? To return to God's law. What would it look like? We know what it looks like now. Well, we would have a Supreme Court that would repeal some of the decisions they've made over the last few years, right? They would repeal uh, gay marriage. They would repeal that. They would repeal Roe versus Wade, wouldn't they? The politicians and our media would somehow be held accountable for what they say and prosecution for lies. How about that? A repealing of all kinds of corporate handouts and corruption, special interests, special political groups. I mean, we know what's wrong. And we see those things getting repealed. Well, not really. Well, what if we just return our schools and give our teachers the freedom to teach truth without bias against faith? How about that? we pray in school again? Probably not. What about a society that cares for the widows, that adopts the fatherless at an astonishing rate, that stamps out corruption, that holds the guilty accountable? I wish I could see this happening. I really wish I could see this happening. Just as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets longed for that to happen in their countries. I think we long for it to happen in ours. But the sad reality is that we may not be able to return from this condition. God says in verse 21, How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderous. That's true. You know, we are, <laughs> it 
it's kind of interesting. I can't remember the statistic, but it was not too long ago I heard a, a city, I think it was New York City, boasting about how much lower the murder rate was. You still have murders. Lots of them. And here in our little city, too. God says they're full of murders. And if it wasn't for the advancement of medical science, many more murders would be committed. The attempted murder rate is super high. Our cities are places for crime. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water, your princes. You could definitely read uh, congressmen in there are rebellious, companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes, follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor the cause of the widow doesn't even come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And you know, that is the amazing thing about God's curses, isn't it? That is the amazing thing about his judgments. It is they are ultimately not to destroy us from existence. They are to purge away our sin, our dross, and restore us. He's going to restore us. He says, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. We are going to be melted down. And all of the dross and the alloy and the bad stuff burned away. And what will be left after that purging is going to be pure gold. Refined in the fire. We will return to the old ways. We will be restored to the first. We will be called the faithful city. But how will this be done? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden on the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every, is war, every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. God is going to bring us to this place where we'll no longer be oppressed, where there is joy, where there is an abundance of food and drink, a place where all hearts will rejoice, when there will be no more burdens, no more slavery, no more oppression, no more battle, no more war. Even the warrior's uniform, it says, his garments and the sandals on his feet that are soaked with blood will be burned away. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It says, Now it shall come in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, just as we sung earlier today, 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And here's the difference. We will walk in his paths. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. There will be no more memorials of great battles. There will be no more memorials of events in history that were civil wars between brothers. There will not be any more of that. And I'm sorry, but there won't be any more Second Amendment either. There will be no more weapons. Nothing to destroy or kill in all of his holy mountain. No more dictatorships. No more authoritarian regimes. No more caliphates. No more oppressive governments. No more republics. That's a dangerous thing to say, standing in a republic, isn't it? No more republics. And no more democracy. Whoa. Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried. No more democracy. There will be no more constitutional monarchies either. So, you know, goodbye the Queen of England. There will be one form of government. And it will be an absolute monarchy where God is king. And all of this because of one child that grew into a man who died as a man and was raised a God to save not just you and I, but the whole world. In closing, it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. No one else's. No more kings to lead us astray. No more politicians to lead us down the wrong path. It will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, for many centuries, now, the cry in England at, at the monarch's death has been, God save the king, or God save the queen. But of course, that's not what we will cry for. As a citizen of the new world to come, we cry, may God the king save us.